looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 527. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles over tackle everything from Jean Luc Godard to Jean Luc Picard. And today we're tackling the era of ancient Rome as it made its transition from a republic to an empire. The subject was pitched through Victor Rodriguez, recurring contributor to Wrong Real, author of The Sound of Fear, who also has a new podcast to promote. And he actually pitched the idea of tackling a show that's been on my to-do list for a long time, Rome, which ran on HBO, I think, from 2005 to 2007, a show that was celebrated by one of my favorite historians, Daniele Boyelli, on his show, History on Fire. So, Victor, not only welcome back to Wrong Real, but thank you so much for pitching a topic that has basically been my kind of homework that I've been procrastinating about for a very long time. Thank you, sir. It's an honor to be here, as usual, and um, very happy I could uh, get your listeners turned on to this show because it is one of the, if not the, favorite show of mine that has been on HBO. I know a lot of people out there have subscriptions, and because maybe those post-dated the airings of the show, they haven't turned into it yet. But um, it's such a good production, and um, I just wanted uh, to make sure everybody knew it. Yeah, I was watching the documentary on John Milius, maybe back right before the Conan a live stream with Bill Tech this past spring, and they mentioned at the end of the doc that he was one of the executive producers, and it was yet another reminder that I needed to see this. And I think what people are going to start to realize now, as HBO has a lot of new people working over there now, a lot of people, a lot of new people, kind of running the show. But that Rome falls right smack dab in the middle of that golden age of HBO where they could kind of do no wrong, whether you're talking about The Sopranos or The Wire or whatever. And you see so many directors like uh, Timothy Van Patten or Alan Taylor who would go on to become really, really famous on other shows, whether it's Boardwalk Empire or Game of Thrones. But all the ingredients that made HBO such a powerhouse a few years later are all on display here. You've got horrific brutality abundant sex and nudity, a lot of entertainment and history kind of stirred together. But it's funny how people talk about so many other shows over at HBO, and I feel like Rome deserves to be mentioned right alongside any great show that you've ever seen on HBO. Yeah, I think that uh, I totally agree. I, I think that the um, the one thing that Rome lacks uh, that may have caused a uh, lack of of uh, coverage by fans and media is just that um, it's uh, not a licensable IP. Uh, I mean, it's it's life consists entirely of this show. Uh, and, um, you know, it's Rome. I mean, it's history. Yeah. And, it's and, fair uh, game for anybody, whether you're a, a playwright or a sculptor or a painter or a novelist or a historian. Yeah, people have been talking about this period ever since. I mean, obviously... William Shakespeare, he did uh, Antony and Cleopatra, he did The Tragedy of Julius Caesar, or like great novels like I, Claudius, which comes a little bit after this era, but a lot of the characters who are like his grandparents and great-grandparents are in this show, but novelists and filmmakers and storytellers have been obsessed with this period for thousands of years, and something tells me two, two more thousand years from now, people will still be talking about <laughs> this era. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, you know, it, it is just um, this uh, this HBO treatment of of the this uh, fairly short period in history, but very interesting one is um, is top notch. Like it's really, they they really pulled out all the stops visually. I think it's just it strikes just the right balance between CG and practical effects. 
great performances, uh, memorable characters. I went in slightly skeptical going, oh, yeah, you know, I know what that period's like. And uh, I was stunned at how much uh, new information and uh, stunned at doing research for this show, how much accuracy went into the show. It's, it's an incredible amount of detail. Yeah, that Jonathan Stamp in there is the historical consultant. Well, before we get too deep into the weeds with gladiators and generals and, you know, emperors and slaves and hookers and all the crazy types of characters that we encounter in the show. Let's pause for a second, talk about what you've been up to. As I mentioned before, you're the author of The Sound of Fear, but at least uh, at, at my most recent count, you're up to five episodes of your new podcast. So that is a new venture since we last recorded. Give us all the details. Oh, yeah. Thanks for mentioning it. It's uh, It was a great idea by my brilliant producer, Josh Ellis. Um, he was just like, hey, you write about audio horror and noir. Why not make an audio version of your book? And I was just like, well, you know, I don't really know too much about recording and, you know, uh, that sort of stuff of voiceover and doing voices and stuff like that. And he was like, I'll do it. Uh, and uh, so we started recording uh, my readings. So basically, if um, if you've already bought the book, uh, or if you don't want to buy the book, but you still want to read the stories, uh, you can just tune into this podcast, which is absolutely free. And uh, I will do a reading of each one of the stories in the book. And then uh, Josh uh, walks me through a short interview afterwards about uh, inspirational sources for the episode, etc. So, um, yeah. I think what you're exploring is what's going to be the new frontier for a lot of authors and novelists as like the publishing industry has obviously contracted over the last 10 years. People are less interested, but at the same time, people's interest in podcasts and YouTube, et cetera, has exploded. And I, I love the Brett Brady Sinell's podcast. And what he's been doing recently is he opens up every single episode with one chapter of the book that he's working on. And it's based on his own life, these murders that he was a, a part of or that he witnessed as a, a teenager. And it's absolutely fascinating because he has his – in the past, he would open up with like a rant or like a discussion about film culture. But he's a novelist, and obviously he's most famous for being a novelist. And I think you're going to see a more and more authors pivoting into doing that where they read their own stuff. And like recently, I've been listening to these great fantastic recordings by Christopher Lee reading the classic short stories of Edgar Allan Poe. And I love reading Edgar Allan Poe, but it really comes to life when you've got Christopher Lee reading like The Fall of the House of Usher and things like that. So I think you are in the, in the, right, in the perfect spot to be kind of exposing your, uh, your fiction to the world at large. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Well, uh, your podcast was definitely one of the shows that got me into podcasts. Uh, so uh, you definitely deserve the credit. And um <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I'm just really really happy that the um, you know my work's getting out there and in in, uh, in any form and obviously uh, yeah I'm thrilled at the response uh, to this and um, yeah I'm, I'm happy to keep going and uh, I think we're we're almost done with production we're just uh, you know going to finish up post production probably by the end of the year and release the rest of the episodes between um, you know the last quarter of uh, 2020 but uh, I think you'll find in the future that I will always stand ready to help wrong real however and how often ever I possibly can.
Well, I don't know if this is a sign of the aging process or not, but as I was preparing for this episode, I could feel the like the warning signs of becoming obsessed with this period. And I feel like no like every guy reaches a certain point where they become like obsessed with the American Civil War. They become obsessed with World War II or they become obsessed with like the Scottish efforts at independence over like many, many centuries. That my dad went down that rabbit hole and didn't come up for air for about a decade. He kept scranting raving about Robert the Bruce and none of his kids would ever listen. He's like, this is so interesting. Like how come nobody will listen to me? <laughs> he just got so wrapped up in it. But for me, what blew my mind about preparing for this is how I've spent so much time reading fantasy books and watching science fiction, but all this stuff where you see the transition from Republic to Empire obviously inspired George Lucas when it came to Star Wars, or inspired the depiction of the Targaryens when it comes to the work of George R. R. Martin. And so while I've spent so much time immersing myself in these fictional settings and obsessing over the maps and learning all this stuff... I should just learn the, the actual history that inspired all this crap because <laughs> it's right there and it's real and it's complex and it's detailed. So I, I think at a bare minimum, there are going to be some more episodes that tackle things like the book I, Claudius and its subsequent adaptations or the story of Spartacus and its subsequent adaptations. Something tells me this is not the, uh, the last wrong real episode on Roman history. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to those uh, those podcasts as well. Um, I'm also totally in love with the period, and um, and honestly, because you mentioned I Claudius, uh, I, that was probably the number one reason I made watching Rome a priority because gotcha. I loved I Claudius. I got into that in the probably the you know the early '90s, whenever they released on DVD at first. That's when yeah, I, I got I've a copy yet of it. to see. Is it Derek Jacobi who stars in it? I've yet yes. to see the show. I know that it was like one of the most watched shows in, in uh, television history, but I read the novel from the early 30s, and it's one of the most entertaining novels that I've ever read. I was just absolutely consumed by it, and what m kills my soul is that Charles Lawton and Joseph von Sternberg were working on a movie adaptation in the 30s, and it just fell apart, and there are a few scenes that they shot, and I can't remember why Lawton was feeling ambivalent about the character. Joseph von Sternberg was in a weird stage where he was no longer working with Marlena Dietrich. But what, what exists is riveting, but it absolutely it just it hurts my feelings that they did not finish that project because I, I, what I need to, I think, is it Claudius the God? Is that the sequel that yes. I, I need? I still need to read the sequel, but the first one was so good. I'm almost afraid to read the sequel because I'm worried that it won't necessarily measure up. Yeah, well, the um, uh, they're both great. Um, I can I can tell you, and um, the uh, the TV series, the BBC uh, TV series, is uh, it, it's both books. It encapsulates gotcha. both books. So yeah, nice. That's another way to see it. Well, let's switch gears to Rome. We're not, obviously not going to try and recapture. Uh, 20 years of history in a uh, in a two-hour podcast is just not possible because this is some of the most richly textured periods of, uh, of, of global history. But what is interesting in terms of records of that time is that Julius Caesar kept copious records of his campaign against the Gauls and things like that. Obviously, you could accuse him of being biased in terms of how he portrays that period. But we do have a lot of records from this time. So set the stage for where we are when this show begins, because this show covers 20 years of history. It tries a little bit to age some of the characters. Other characters just remain perpetually young, like uh, Atia, which I have no problem with her remaining perpetually young, or Octavia, or any of those characters. But where are we in Roman history at the start of the show, and where are we at the end of the show? Yeah, um, I think uh, I think it starts in 49 BC, uh, and um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is 
the 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 HBO Rome show starts right after um, <laughs> the Conquest of Gaul book that Caesar wrote ends. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to add, uh, I have read that uh, book. It's actually a pretty good read. It's it's not as dry as you might think it is. Uh, it was total uh, political propaganda at the time that Caesar used to, uh, you know, make a move politically uh, in Rome. But um, it is a weird combination of it being from directly from a sort the most qualified source in the world because he was there like he was an eyewitness to all these events but of course as a propaganda maker he is very unlikely to broadcast the whole truth yeah it's a great primary source but you know it's got some confirmation bias <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um so yeah uh, so it starts in 49 BC after uh, the conquest of Gaul is complete and Caesar is on his way back to Rome. Um, and uh, the story, uh, as you said, it follows a couple of uh, old Roman families that are very interested in how their uh, city and empire is going to change uh, after Caesar returns triumphantly. Uh, his old business partners, Pompey Magnus and um, uh, Mark Antony, uh, coming back with Caesar and um, the uh, the Senate. And it also, uh, that's about 50% of the show. And then the other 50% is focusing on these two soldiers. Um, two studs. Yeah, two, two supremely likable characters, even though uh, they may not be played particularly likable. One of them is, but uh, the other one is, is sort of... I mean, they have... Everyone in this show has larger-than-life flaws, and this is a show where that has a, a very different form of morality from our morality of today. So from their point of view, they're very moral people, but they also do – they indulge in all the, a lot of the reprehensible behavior that is totally standard for this time. Indeed. No, and I think that the writers did a tremendous job in showing all shades of morality uh, for the time. Uh, you know, they were great at showing period thought. And also providing it, enter providing entertainment for a modern day audience at the it's same time. It's wildly entertaining. I mean, as soon as the first episode of the first season ended, I just sat back and I th said to myself, "All right, that was one of the best pilots that I've ever seen." If you're not addicted after the first episode, something is dreadfully wrong, and it's criminal <laughs> that they only got to do two seasons. But this was a incredibly expensive show. And the audience just wasn't quite there. It was originally intended to be five seasons. They had to condense it to two. And you feel that in the second half of the second season where you're just mm -hmm. leaping through years at a time and giant battles like uh, Philippi or the, or like the relationship between Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Like, it's like you're, I don't know, like sprinting through history. But it does remain a really compelling show because I feel like these two characters that you mentioned, um, Lucius Varenas and Titus Pulo, they ground the show and they kind of help you continue to see it from a much more just i don't know um i guess a less lofty perspective because they are they roll their sleeves up and they're they're up to their ears and shit dealing with all the major historical events of the time but obviously they don't really they don't really care who wins or loses they end up kind of working for a lot of the the major figures at different points throughout their journey well feeling that talk to her talk what? It doesn't matter. It's all about the tone of the voice. Pretend you're putting a saddle on a skittish horse. There, honey. Shh. Come now. You know, that sort of thing. And that's all. What else? Oh, tell her she's beautiful. All the time. 
Tell her she's beautiful every time you see her, even when she's not. And what else? Oh, I. Also, very important. When you couple with her, there's a spot just above her cunny. It's like a little button. Now, attend to that button, and she will open up like a flower. How do you know this of her? All women have them. <laughs> Ask anyone. Yeah, they're just trying to survive. And um, I think that one of the things uh, depicted in this show that I rarely have seen in uh, in film and, and TV in the modern day is how soldiers adapt to non-war life. Uh, and... Um, you know, there's a book uh, that if, if anybody out there wants to read a non a great non-fictional account of all the details that soldiers have to go through to adapt to being warriors and then adapt to being civilians afterwards, um, there's a book called What It Is Like to Go to War by Carl Marlantis. And um, uh, that was a huge education for me that I read after I saw Rome. Um, but I, I really feel like the Rome guys got all the major details right in, in how... They have to adapt to family life and um, and just and then going back and forth. Like at some point they get drafted again and yeah. they go back Especially to war between again. Like Varinus and his wife, uh, what is her name? Uh, I absolutely adore her. Niobe. He, she hasn't seen him in eight years. And he comes home from fighting in Gaul and it's like, well, all right, well, how do you pick up the piece? She, A, she thinks he's dead. And B, you have this not madman, but a very intense individual <laughs> who's used to people following his orders, marching back into the household and kind of throwing his weight around. And their relationship with the first season is fascinating. And I, and I love the actress who played Naobi, uh, Indira Varma. She's an Indian actress, but people will remember her as uh, one of the characters from Game of Thrones. She's one of the uh, characters from Dorne, and she's just fabulous in this. But that's, I love how whether you're seeing the, the whole story from the point of view of Julius Caesar himself or from the point of view of Niobe, you really get a chance to see all the different levels of Roman life and what Rome was like at that time and just how many people from different parts of the globe were there and the way they share information. It's almost like they have their version of social media where they have this guy every day where he just stands up in the middle of a town square and just screams all the news and he, you know, he does it with a lot of theatricality, but it's fascinating. I just love how they found a lot of really dramatic, compelling, entertaining ways to feed all the necessary information to the consumer because I went into this having a very shaky, fragile knowledge. And as I was watching, I kept consulting different pages on Wikipedia and trying to supplement my knowledge. Like when I first saw the character of Octavian, I was like, oh, well, who's that little shit? And then as I was watching a few more episodes, I was like, oh, he's going to become most powerful emperor in the history of the world <laughs> yeah. eventually and be the first emperor of Rome and rule for like 40 years. And so it was fascinating kind of filling in the gaps as I went. Well, yeah, uh, I, uh, I just, I feel like the, the treatment of Octavian is awesome because that's a, yeah exactly how he comes across. He's played by two actors, I think during the course of the first and second season to show the, the passage of years. But, um, it's kind of it starts to be apparent uh, in in the middle of season one that Octavian, there's something up with his personality. Um, and I, I guess what they're trying to portray is that he is a sociopath. Um, you know, he doesn't or at a really... minimum, very cold and distant, and he 
freaks people out even when he's trying to be kind and generous. Like he's almost more disturbing when he's trying to be calm and rational. Right. Yeah. There's there's a sequence um, with uh, uh, Octavian and uh, Titus Pullo torturing a man, and uh, at one point Pullo, who is a practiced killer, you know, he's he's a professional warrior, says, "Oh, I thought you were going to be stunned by all this." <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think that the, uh, the return to Rome in the first couple of episodes, uh, where, um, Varinus gets back together with his wife, basically, uh, I definitely felt shades of the Odyssey there, like the return of Odysseus to Penelope, except, um, you know, uh, Niobe wasn't quite as, um, <laughs> quite as faithful. Yeah, she uh, wasn't, almost. she wasn't longing for his return, and yeah, that's one of the great undercurrents is while we're watching you know the tide of human history and armies in motion and societies rising and falling we have this interesting story where when will this soldier figure out that this child who he is told is his grandchild is actually the child that his wife created with another man during his absence and so it's it allows the show to remain rooted in very human drama, almost kind of soap opera in a lot of way. But you need the soap opera. If you want just history, then read a history book. This show is not trying to be just a Wikipedia entry. It's trying to be a dramatic show. And so it has to have all the melodrama that you associate with it. But because of the, the let's just say, <laughs> different points of view on what is morality, you're, I found myself constantly howling with laughter the things that they're so blasé about. Like at one point when Julius Caesar, who's an epileptic, he's having a, a fit. And back then, if you had a, an affliction like this, you were essentially were deemed to be cursed by the gods. And so it has to be kept secret because obviously no one's going to follow somebody who's cursed by the gods. And he's having one of his fits. He's dragged into a room to kind of keep him in private. And who's there but his, uh, I guess, great nephew, Octavian. But while he's in there, like, ah, ah, making all these sounds, a maid walks by hears these sounds and assumes that Julius Caesar's having it off with his great nephew. And when Octavian's mother, Caesar's niece, hears this, Atia of the Julii, she's thrilled. She's like, oh my God, like how exciting that my son is boning Julius Caesar. Like what political opportunities will be opened up? I mean, the fact that she right. is so thrilled and so like excited, those types of insights, I just found to be fascinating where everything's used for the the accumulation or acquisition of power, like the, the orgies, and people would go to these orgies just in, in, primarily so they could like suck slave cock, as they say. I mean, it's just, it blew my mind just how uncompromising and uninhibited this show when it came to the sexual norms of the, of the nobility at this time. Uh, yeah, apparently uh, Roman society had no hangups about sex, um, nor do they, uh, I believe, have a word for homosexuality in Latin. Um, it's just sex. And, uh, you know, it's just a, perceived as a bodily function. And, um, you know, obviously the Rome, Romans were very obsessed, being the, uh, the number one power in the world at the time, with power. So perception of being the powerful figure in a relationship it was everything to them. Um, so, you know, 
whether it's straight, gay, or whatever, you know, if you were the powerful dude, you were doing your love life right. Yeah, the only thing I've heard, and I was just listening to one of Daniele Bolielli's podcasts right before we started recording, is one he has a two-parter about gladiators. For at that for whatever reason at the time, uh, while homosexuality homosexuality was not frowned upon, gay gladiators were kept in separate, um, uh, I guess, quarters than mm. straight gladiators. So I guess they were just you know wanted to make sure that uh, I, I, I would have to I, I don't know necessarily the reasons why, but that's the one um, example I've heard of like some sort of segregation. But they all still competed in the exact same way. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I had never heard of that, but, uh, yeah, I imagine, uh, just to, you know, any groups of gladiators that might fight each other before the, <laughs> the stadium lights went on, so to speak, uh, probably encouraged to, uh, prevent gladiator on gladiator violence. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but it's funny how like, we obviously as Americans have a very you know, like specific relationship with slavery, but the depiction of slavery at this time is, is totally different where some people will slowly but surely earn enough money as a slave to buy their freedom, or a lot of slaves would be freed upon their master's death. Or in the case of some gladiators, a lot of them would become celebrities, and you know they would uh, you know, almost be lusted after by the people, and noble women sometimes would arrange clandestine encounters with these gladiators. It'd basically be like getting to like, fuck Chris Hemsworth or something like that. While they were entertainers, and they were looked down upon for being entertainers, they were still celebrities in their own way. And I love shows that challenge our assumptions about institutions like slavery and showing it in a, ver- in a million different ways, especially when you have the hero of the show, uh, Lucius Varanus, who comes back from his wars in Gaul. He's got a bunch of uh, slaves. like He's got like a, a basically an entire cage full of slaves that he looks upon the same way we would like cattle, and he wants right. to fatten them up and sell them off. And he's so blasé about it. And when, while we as the audience might react in horror when you see that basically a sickness goes through the cage, kills off all of them except for this one little boy. When we see this little boy, he's hugging the decaying, rotting corpse of his mother. So while we feel this deep swell of pity, Varanus is just like, ah, like, oh my God, like what, what an, like, what a wasted investment. And so this is the moral center of the show in a lot of ways. And even he can be that blasé. And so once again, I just feel like a show that's not constantly judging its characters or trying to make the audience judge its characters, I found once again to be very refreshing in you know, 20 or 15 years later, a much more judgmental era. Right. Yeah. I feel like at least one once per episode, they have a detail like that that um, puts you in the period going, ooh, that's shocking thought. But it also propels the, the characters forward story-wise. You know, yeah. it's just great, great writing. Yeah, the writing is first rate. Uh, who was the creator of this show? Like, what, what, what's the writing staff? I think uh, the main three were Bruno Heller. Um, I think he may have been the originator of it. Uh, then uh, William J. McDonald and John Milius joined the creative staff. John Milius, it's funny, people always think of him as like this sad case who had like a big like explosion in the 70s and early 80s and then kind of fell out of fashion. But clearly, he had a third act in his career. I mean, he started as a screenwriter. He was a, a very well-paid screenwriter. Things like the Life and Death of uh, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, and then yeah. obviously made all these big movies like Conan. But I love the fact that he was able to stay relevant. And I, I think eventually, a few years after this, he had a stroke, which really shut him. He even lost the power of speech for a while. But one of my friends bumped into him recently. He said he was very pleasant and very affable and, and very easy to talk to now. So yeah, John Milius. If you like Conan the Barbarian and the, the the world he depicts there, you see uh, 
kind of seeds or ingredients from that world planted in this world as well. Totally. I, I uh, you know, Conan the Barbarian was a huge uh, movie milestone for me. I saw it in the theater when it came out. I was just old enough to, to see it, I think. Yeah, and I was um, five. I saw it in the theater as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I definitely uh, feel the hand of uh, Milius uh, in Rome kind of following the same form. Uh, and um, yeah, the period thought, like the conversation about the gods that, uh, you know, Conan has with his, his buddy. Um, Subutai, yeah. The, yeah, Subutai. Yeah. Um, and uh, like, I feel like there's a lot of that kind of stuff in Rome, uh, but it, it totally propels the characters forward just like it did in Conan. Yeah, this is a, a very not spiritual, but almost like superstitious time where you have gods from all over the world being celebrated and prayed to and solicited and like nothing gets done without the approval of the gods. I mean, even Julius Caesar is one of the most superstitious of them all when he sees that um, that uh, the two heroes, Titus Pullo and Lucius Varenus, have survived and done all these amazing things like f- retrieving his gold eagle standard or surviving this horrible storm and coming back from an island even when they do something that should have been punished, like when they allow uh, Pompey to flee to Egypt, Caesar's like, oh, I'm not going to punish them. They're clearly beloved by the gods. I do not like to disagree with you, but you're being far too lenient with him. He let Pompey go and you let him live? The man should be made an example of. Any other man, certainly. But those two, they found my stolen standard. Now they survive a wreck that drowned an army and find Pompey Magnus on a beach. They have powerful gods on their side. And I will not kill any man with friends of that sort. If you are deemed to be cursed by the gods, then people will avoid you like the plague. And I found that to be fascinating because obviously Rome was not just pure people who were born and bred in Rome, people from all over the world. And guess what? They brought all the religions with them. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I think assimilation was one of the huge bonuses to uh, to Rome's explosive development. Um, the fact that they were tolerant of other cultures to a degree uh, and assimilated the cultures, the gods. And of course, you know, the gods being so important, you know, you'd have Egyptian gods that's like, well, yeah, I mean, those are the gods that helped the Egyptians, but they've been proven because it's an old civilization. So clearly the gods favored them at one point. So maybe we should worship an Egyptian god for this one thing that we have to do. Uh, And that's how, you know, uh, religion sort of got assimilated into Roman society. Yeah, and I love how, I mean, their Greek knowledge, philosophy, religion, etc. is very fashionable and in vogue, and obviously all the Greek gods are still very very popular, but known by different names. But you and I obviously tackled some Greek mythology on a live stream about the Odyssey a couple months ago. Yeah. And so I, I just as a Greek mythology buff, I love seeing this entire society where, for them, it's real. I mean, we are, at this point, like 40 years before the birth of Christ. Like, obviously, there were about, I guess it takes until maybe like six centuries after the birth of Christ before Christianity really becomes in vogue. And I guess it was, um, there was mm-hmm. uh, some emperor who was told basically, like, all your sins will be forgiven if you convert to Christianity and help spread it. And that's where it really started to take root. So, obviously, Christianity as we know it wouldn't take root for many centuries. 
But when it comes to history, we are quite literally like 40, 45 years before the birth of Christ at this point, and the Greek mythology is still very much a thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the Greek, uh, you know, I mean, you know, anybody who uh, studied uh, Roman and Greek gods uh, when they were younger or, or you know, in college or whatever, um, you know, obviously there are a lot of uh, ripoffs that the Romans just basically uh, adapted a, a Roman name onto a Greek god, you know, almost exactly. And that's sort of the basis of the Pantheon. They made one improvement. I prefer Hercules over Heracles, but I pref- <laughs> otherwise I prefer all the Greek names. Well, uh, Apollo's easy because he's Apollo in either. But yeah, when it comes to like names of planets versus names like, you know, I prefer Zeus to Jupiter and et cetera and so forth. But, you know, they, it makes sense that they would name the gods after the, the, the giant heavenly bodies. And it blows my mind that you didn't even know what the hell those planets were, that they had names. Like, the fact that they were able to identify Pluto. Like, how the fuck did they know what Pluto was back then? <laughs> uh, you know, I think, uh, I don't think they saw Pluto until the Renaissance uh, European days. Gotcha. Um, it, it was just one of the important gods, and then they decided to name the planet after the Interesting. because they had gotcha. you know, started. Check out the brain on Victor Rodriguez. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly just guessing, uh, but... Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a it's a great time. But you mentioned the Greeks. Um, the Greeks were obviously the um, a very close, like uh, very close by um, geographically uh, civilization to Rome, uh, and the Romans conquered the Greeks. But the the Romans also had a lot of great respect um, for Greeks and their philosophy and debates and and all. And a lot of Roman law is founded on that. Um, but, uh, they mention at some point in the show, like in the first season, um, that, uh, a lot of the nobles in Rome are educated by Greek scholars. Gotcha. So they have more of a, um, even though the gods are, are still very important for people like Caesar and Atia and, you know, the, the main character, the, the, the super powerful people in the city, um, they still, they still give homage to, uh, to the gods, uh, but they're a little more skeptical about how the gods get involved. Like they see them more as well. It's something we have to do because of traditions and how we're seen. But, um, you know, whether there are really these people in yeah, space, Octavian is a total this. skeptic and he's like, this is all superstition and nonsense. But I love how there's this great scene in the, in the very last episode of season two where Mark Antony and Varinus are just getting wasted, and it's the night before Mark Antony's great defeat. And I love how Varinus is like, Greeks talk a whole pile of nonsense. Fuck them. <laughs> and like, that, that's his perspective. And that's what's fun about this is how, even though it's a show about Rome, it's a very British show in terms of like the slang and the way they express themselves. This is a, a British production, British crew, British cast, and all the slang is very, it's almost like Cockney Brit at times, so it's an interesting hybrid. They're not trying to pretend as, I mean, obviously, I guess would the show have to be in fucking Latin in order to be true, true to the period? So they are, right. it's a hybrid. It's the the the, the British Im- impression of this period, but what was interesting is I was doing my research on the show is how people who grew up in the UK are much more well-versed with these events than Americans, probably because of shows like I, Claudius, like this is kind of old hat, or just going to see plays like The Tragedy of Julius Caesar. And they had different versions of the first few episodes for the American audience versus the British audience because they just knew that the Americans needed some cliff notes because we're just 
totally ignorant and stupid and like what like what's rome and so they <laughs> they knew they could hit the ground running there with the british audience yeah no you're absolutely right um i i feel like the american versions of rome are the best versions uh you know f for that reason and also because uh, that's how the filmmakers intended to make it and then they trimmed down versions of that you know for violence and sexual content for british and, and italian uh, audiences weirdly <laughs> Yeah. Even though this is their people. I, yeah, that's uh, funny. I saw that uh, in Italy, they said the show came on at nine and uh, instead of at midnight or later, like other HBO shows. And because of that, they, the violence was toned down and all instances of incest, rape, and homosexuality were removed completely. It's like, geez. well, what's the point of watching a show about Rome unless you're going to get all the incest, rape, and homosexuality? Because that's part of the fun of, of watching a show because every single episode... It is so uninhibited in its depiction of all this crazy shit. When you see Octavian and Octavia getting it on, and then the mother beating the crap, and I was like, "Oh wow, y'all are, y'all are really uh, going." And of course, Octavia is doing it because she's trying to get information and all this stuff. But it's totally, completely frank. Or in the very first episode, when when one of the ways you're introduced to this character of Atia of the Julia, who's probably my favorite character of the show. Her son comes to see her. She stands up in the bath, and she basically just allows him to take in full frontal nudity and all of her glory, and she's almost kind of flaunting it and showing it off but trying to turn him on and tease him. And it's just a very strange moment between mother and son, but yeah. I feel like it, it immediately lets you know who you're dealing with with these characters. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, like uh, like we said before, um, every, every awkward sexual scene, they cover a lot of um, unusual takes on sexuality in the show. Uh, it's it's a very spicy show. Uh, I would say definitely on level with Game of Thrones or, or maybe I even... I think it surpasses Game of Thrones when it comes to... I mean, yeah. Game of Thrones has a lot of titillation, yeah. but they don't really get into the weeds on just how much variety there is. Whereas Rome, like, kids, kids' gloves are off. Absolutely. They don't they the writers were, you know, not asked to hold back on on anything. And in depictions of gore and violence, I think it also exceeds just about everything I've seen on television. It's I mean, savage. It's the, savage. The, 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 yeah, the like one of the first episodes, the scene where they do like open head surgery on Pullo yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the goriest things I've ever seen in my it's life. It's the second episode. So yeah, Pullo, he stabs a guy for cheating at dice. He gets in a fight. He stumbles in. He's got a head injury. And so they bring in a, a surgeon. I mean, heaven help you if you have a surgeon from 2,000 years ago. So they strap you down and they whip out this circular saw they screwed into the top of his head they removed this chunk of his skull they remove a little bone fragment and then they put a metal plate in and then you see him hammering in the metal plate over his brain you're just like oh my fucking god i mean i could not believe how hardcore the show was so yeah once just, again the first few episodes i was i was instantly a fan for life yeah just just hearing you describe that again brought a tear to my eye um yeah and of course you're awake the whole time it's not like there's any anesthetic i mean that comes like you know uh but 1800 years later you just have to sit there with like a wooden dowel in your mouth that you bite down on as they hammer plates into your head I know. And it, it sort of it, it was also really cool uh, because you're going, oh, I, I kind of get why, you know, Pullo, who's not the, you know, the brightest bulb in the in the bunch, uh, why he survived all this time, because he can take insane amounts of punishment and live, you know. 
Yeah, the introduction of his character is great. Like my my dad, when I was a kid, used to talk obsessively about Roman tactics and battle. And he had these kids books where you see them doing things like creating like a giant shell over a, a group where like they all put their shields together and how they worked as a unit, not as individuals. And how they walk into battle, like holding onto the person in front of them, and if one person goes down, you pull them back, and so you had this uniform resistance, and the Gauls were basically rampaging barbarians and they had vast numbers and they they knew the land but they really couldn't compete with roman organization and how the night before a battle rome wouldn't just sit by the fire and chill they would essentially build like a city or a fort and so the morning of the battle the gauls were like what the fuck like where did that village come from but like the, it, the romans were just light years ahead of them in terms of organization but we get this great battle early on and we see how titus polo He's breaking ranks and he rushes out with like battle lust and he's just going crazy and he's kicking all kinds of ass, but you're not allowed to do that. You fight as a unit, not as an individual. He gets basically thrown in a cell and he basically, he redeems himself and he teams up with Varinus and they go looking for this gold eagle standard because if they don't find the standard, then that's going to be a bad omen for the, for the Romans and so on and so forth. But of course, as they go looking for this standard, who, who do they find? But young Octavian who's been kidnapped... You will be amply rewarded for your services to me. See how good he talks? He's convincing, I'll give him that. Caesar will prove who I am. Take me to him. Cannot do that as yet. We have orders. What orders? To retrieve Caesar's stolen eagle. Caesar wouldn't pull a hair for his eagle. You're on a fool's errand. If Caesar doesn't care about the eagle, why did he send us to find it? It would look strange if he made no effort. Actually, losing the eagle is useful to Caesar. Why would that be useful to Caesar? Because Pompey is no deep philosopher. He will take a symbolic loss for a real weakness. Explain. Caesar doesn't want to strike the first blow against an old friend. So he wishes to lure Pompey into attacking him first. Pompey will only do this if he believes Caesar is weak. No. They're as good as brothers, those two. When Julia died, the last true bond between them was cut. Caesar has taken the love of the common people from Pompey. And that was his most prized possession. A battle is inevitable. They immediately befriend the person who will become the most powerful person in Rome many years later. And throughout the course of the two seasons, we see how Octavian is always using them for various jobs or throwing them favors or encountering them at the most random times imaginable. But it's the beginning of this strange, unlikely friendship between the most powerful young lad in the empire or future empire and these two just run-of-the-mill soldiers. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, the, the early episodes are definitely a hook. I would say um, the the moment where I was like, I have to watch every single episode of this show as soon as it airs um, was at the end of the third episode where Caesar's marching back to Rome and um, the 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 band that that's playing with the um, with the soldiers are marching this kind of the sad tune. And he goes, Gracchus, play something more cheerful. And they have this really impressive trumpet display uh and they fade out the show and just show the credits and orchestrate that theme into into the music it's just a fantastic moment i mean i knew so little about julius caesar outside of i mean when i was in ninth when i was in ninth grade we read the tragedy of julius caesar and but he dies pretty early on in it and so i had to memorize mark antony's speech you know like uh like friends romans countrymen i come to bury caesar not to praise him but i got up like a five in the morning to memorize it because i've been a slacker and i've been procrastinating but i didn't really know why and how Julius Caesar was able to seize power, but I thought it was fascinating seeing how his enemies, like Pompey, they essentially hand over the city because Julius Caesar, while he's vastly unnumbered, 
He's got men that have been in the trenches for eight years fighting Gauls, whereas uh, Pompey has a bunch of fresh green recruits. And we get this great scene where Titus Polo and Varenus, they go charging up against a, a small group of people who all just flee in terror. And they basically take Rome without spilling a single drop of blood. Pompey gets totally screwed because the people that are transporting all this gold out of Rome, they betray him, and they, of course, get killed, and then the, the gold gets stolen. But just seeing that whole—I mean, this is going to be the recurring theme for the episode. There's always two or three people that are competing for power over—they're always talking about the Republic and the Golden Age, and, but it seems like as, the more they proclaim their value for the Senate and the values of the Republic, the more they become tyrannical despots <laughs> trying to seize yes. power. But Pompey and Caesar are just at each other's throats for the first half of the first season, and it was absolutely riveting. But let's start talking about some of the marvelous cast on this show, in particular, Julius Caesar himself. And I'm always a little confused as to the proper pronunciation of his name, but uh, is it Syrian Hines, or how do you say his name? (laughs) I I think it's Sharon. Sharon? Uh, Yeah, one of those crazy Irish names. We need to get um, Simon or uh, Robert to to tell us the the proper pronunciation, but obviously he's been doing stuff since like Excalibur all the way up through Justice League. You know, a phenomenal actor. I'm a huge fan, but man... He really nails Julius Caesar. Is he? He's an Excalibur. I, I now I got to go back and watch that. Oh again. yeah, in the scene, the scene when um, uh, Arthur has uh, Urians in, down in like the, in the water with the sword, and he's like, "A noble knight swears like faith to a squire," and you hear a person behind him go, "Never." Never. That's Syrian Hines who's saying oh, yes. that he's super skinny and like gnawed down and skeletal. But yeah, he's uh, he he is in there with the rest of them. Oh man, awesome. Um, yeah, he's he's fantastic. Uh, I I would say that he probably was chosen. Well, he's chosen because he's great, but uh, you know, great performer. But also because he kind of looks like the bronze and uh, and and you know, uh, marble statues of Caesar that we have. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> his voice is incredible. Um, you know, the, 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 the casting for the show is just absolutely spot on. Pompey's murderer. Alas, he has run away. Find him. In the meantime, these instruments tabulate the money that was borrowed by His Majesty's illustrious father, Ptolemy XII. In the name of the Republic, I have come to collect. 17,000 drachma. 17. Sir. Four, perhaps. The tabulation includes all monies borrowed from Pompey and other agents of the Republic now unable to collect. That is not just. Post-mortem interests of this type are legally entailed to the presiding consul, i.e. Gaius Julius Caesar. It's law. Roman law. Is there some other form of law? You wretched woman. One thousand apologies. Forgive us. There. There's for your payment. So sorry. His Majesty forgets he's a vassal to Rome. Vassal? Vassal? I am no vassal. 
I am king. I Sit am... down. Thank you. When can I expect payment? Your Honor, we have little enough ready coin for our own needs. Our tax farmers have not been working as they should because... Because? Cleopatra's foolishness has stirred unrest in some parts. Nothing serious. Well, I do not wish to appear unreasonable. I will accept 10,000 drachma. Even that amount will take many days to collect. In that case, I shall have ample time to adjudicate your dispute with Princess Cleopatra. Excellent notion. But alas, who knows where Princess Cleopatra is? I do not worry about that. I shall find her. Yeah, there wasn't a single actor where I was like, oh, they're not really bringing their A-game. And every once in a while, some luminary like Simon Callow will, will pop up for an episode. Like, fuck yeah, Simon Callow. But man, my all my love and affection for this cast pretty much goes exclusively to Polly Walker as Atia of the Julii, who embraces yeah. and exemplifies and personifies all the virtues and vices of this period, you know, power mad. I mean, she's the niece of Caesar, so it's, but she finds a way to play both sides because it's not always obvious who's going to win in these struggles. And there's a, a point mm -hmm. where her house is basically under siege by an angry mob, and she, in a very casual way, is walking around and giving out assignments over who's going to murder who because it's just unseemly to allow an angry mob to come in and rape and pillage and so on and so forth. And then, of course, she's telling her slaves, and as soon as you're done killing us, you have to kill, your, you have to kill yourself as well. And they're like, oh, of course, madam. Like, <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that is like the type of relationship they have. And even if she's in bed with Mark Antony, just like with those giant heaving breasts covered in sweat, just going, getting buck wild, her slaves and servants are just sitting there like knitting and watching and bringing them water. Like that was so funny how if you remember the nobility, your slave is like your handler or your pal or your mm -hmm. confidant. They're with you always, no matter what you're doing and whether you're breeding or going through the privy or whatever. And so, yeah, she just keeps her, her, her closest people by her at all times and they just become invisible during the uh, the physical act of love but man Polly Walker I had never seen her in anything prior to this she just hit a home run with each and every single episode yeah yep she's fantastic I, I think uh, between her and her in-show rival Servilia like um, you see how powerful women in Roman society operated and yeah often they were making decisions that were in their own political interests or in the political interest of the nation or uh, in, you know, just to make sure they survived. Uh, a power the, guys are away. the guys are away, you know, yeah. constantly indulging in civil war. Like, there are very few battles with outsiders. Like, they're not like, fighting each other in the show. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Lindsay Duncan plays Servilia and she is easily one of the most powerful women in this burgeoning empire. What is going to become the empire? Because she is Caesar's favorite lover and she and Atia are always making these vows of eternal friendship and inviting each other to the parties but at the same time they'll also arrange for each other to get kidnapped and stripped naked in public or tortured and they're yeah. constantly making death threats I mean at the end of season one Cerelia tells Atia and her entire family like, run like run for your lives and it's like oh my 
God, like these girls, they, they are not fucking around. No. Yeah, they're very serious. Um, and uh, yeah, I think um, uh, another way this this uh, show differentiated itself from a lot of um, depictions of Rome that came before is that they do show um, uh, female characters being very vulnerable and being playthings and traded between the powerful men in the show, but they also show uh, Atia and Servilia, who are definitely above all that and are manipulating the men around them. Or manipulating the women. I mean, we see how Atia takes her daughter Octavia and basically throws her like a milk bone to Pompey. And it's like, well, look, even if you can't marry her this precise moment, go ahead and feel free to take advantage of her however you like, so on and so forth. We're all family now. It's all it's all well and good. I mean, mm-hmm. Atia just throws her daughter to the wolves. And not only that, makes her divorce her husband and then has the husband murdered just to make sure that the divorce is good and settled. I mean, Atia is just right. as ruthless as any of the other men in the, in the show, if not more so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because she seems to have just a regular um, set of, morals but she just decides to abuse it <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean the end goal is just it's, it's victory at all costs weakness weakness is a vice pity is a vice like empathy and all these words that are so popular today are just absolutely scorned and frowned upon power and ruthlessness these are the virtues of this era everything's completely like the twisted mirror image of 2020 and um we see that increasingly with uh, the people in Varinus's life with all these rivalries between all these whether you want to call them local crime lords or business interests or factions or whatever but the way they compete and the way they outmaneuver one another it's like oh like well we don't like this guy's group so we're going to castrate them and like oh well we don't like the fact that you castrated one of our guys so we're gonna dunk your head in a privy and have in a, and butt rape you to death i mean it's like they are so utterly ruthless in their tactics against each yeah. other yeah um yeah that uh that that actually uh, the, the, upon my second viewing of the series um i i finally got to pick up on sort of the historical significance of uh what you just described uh, that Varinus becomes one of these uh, essentially crime lords uh, of the Aventine, um, which is sort of the the merchant, uh, the rising in power merchant area of Rome, as opposed to the Palatine, which is the sort of the nobles uh, of Rome. Gotcha. And um, yeah, it's it's really interesting to see how the the guilds start to be uh, formed. And I I always thought that stuff started in the European Renaissance, like, uh, but no, it started in, in Rome. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's a very real thing. You get to see sort of the beginning of the Italian mafia, uh, in that these families are sort of, uh, the most powerful families are taking on protection money and, uh, you know, leg breakers to, to make sure people fall in line and fighting each other and unifying against another foe and all that stuff. It's uh, really cool. Yeah. And of course, um, because Titus Polo is such a force of nature he gets used by a lot of these people and then eventually becomes kind of a high-ranking member but it's some funny how sometimes people turn a blind eye to the, these actions sometimes they don't sometimes you're accused of murder sometimes you're not and one yeah. of my favorite kind of hero beats the entire season or the entire show is when titus polo is being put to death and the way he's being put to death he just has, has to fight one gladiator for another and as he's just first he takes down three at once and they're slowly but surely kind of whittling them down then of course Varinus takes pity on him and jumps into the uh, jumps into the octagon with him, and the way they 
I mean, like whether hacking off limbs or the will to take like a, a short sword and go down through the neck and shoulder into the heart. I mean, they just the oh, show pulls man. no punches with any of the ferocity in combat. And of course, as a result of this moment, while they should be punished and put to death, they become heroes with the uh, with the people. And so, of course, nothing can. Well, they're they're always finding a way to justify neither of these characters being punished for uh, for anything. But that balance of power between the nobility and the people is basically at the heart of the show. Caesar's yeah. beloved by the people. The Senate is beloved by the nobility. And it's like, who wields more power by manipulating which faction? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the, uh, the the Romans had an expression, uh, which is race publica, which is like a, a thing of the people. Uh, and um, I read today that that's where the English word republic uh, comes from. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's definitely, it shows that that balance the noble characters are constantly concerned with what the working class and the mob is going to do when they do something because, you know, they're a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and then I think wisely the uh, focus on uh, Polo and Varinus uh, as kind of uh, soldiers that, yeah, the, the, the 13, you know, that, that moment in the, in the gladiatorial uh, stage um, is just so great. That's another thing that Marlantes talks about in his book, um, the bonds that soldiers get when they're fighting uh, is often more powerful than marriage, family, you know, uh, things like that. Like they are inseparable uh, and they fight and die for each other. Well, that's one thing it's, I kept thinking about while watching this show is that we have one civil war after another where you've got Romans fighting Romans. And I, I kept wanting to ask, like, how come these guys don't just say, like, you know what? Settle this amongst yourselves. Like, how come you're making thousands of Romans kill thousands of other Romans because, you know, Mark Antony wants power or Pompey wants power or Octavian wants power, whoever wants power. But it's not like they're fighting Germanic tribes or the Gauls or the Persians or like outside forces. They're always killing each other. And at a certain point, you'd be like... Like, why do we have to keep killing our own people? But they're so loyal to their unit and to, like, their crew. Like, yeah. that's all they really think about. If, if you've got the loyalty of that one, I guess, like, one, that one legion, those legions are never forced to fight within themselves. But the legions are forced to fight other legions all the time. Like, when Brutus and Cassius are returning from Turkey and they're bringing along, I think, 14 legions and they think that they're going to mop the floor with uh, with Octavian. But, of course, when Mark Antony and Octavian join forces, they've got 19 legions. But it seems like those legions remain very solid and loyal within themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just the, the self-empowerment that goes on at the noble level where they're like, well, it's, you know, we've tried every form of negotiation with these guys and they still won't listen to us and we are the only people that can save Rome. <laughs> of course, they all thought that. Yeah. All right. So explain to people out there, what is the key distinction between kind of the golden age of Rome with the Republic and how it was different once, uh, once Octavian essentially becomes Augustus Caesar? Well, um, yeah, the Augustus Caesar, I think, were the um, were the best years of the most prosperous years of Pax the Romana. Of the, yes, exactly, and um, and then uh, a series of factors, um, the the empire at that point being stretched very thin um, and uh, starting to collapse at the outmost borders as well as, you know, uh, people changing their thought, as well as threats to the city being more often from, uh, you know, barbarian <laughs> Celts, <laughs> my people. 
<laughs> uh, getting getting more organized. Do you, have uh, you traced your ancestry back to some of the the, the, the blood drinking Celts? Yeah. Um, yep. I'm uh, I'm I'm pretty much a, a descendant of barbarians. Nice. You know, not, I like it. Not a Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of Scott in my blood. I guess if you talk to the English, like, oh, they're a bunch of fucking savages. But of course, uh, my family's very romantic about it. But I, I I've been to Scotland a few times, and I absolutely love the accent. But I've got a lot of English in me, and I think a little like Danish as well. But my father is because of his obsession with Scottish culture is always kind of trying to overemphasize how much Scottish blood we may or may not have, but you got to go way back before you find any Scots in our family. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, either way, um, you know, the Celts were obviously were a really fierce uh, opponent, and uh, Caesar did his best in um, in the conquest of Gaul to make them seem even more terrifying, to make them more of a foe that needed to be brought to heel by Rome, because otherwise, you know, if left out of control, they're going to come, you know, march into the gates, which, of course, they eventually did. Uh, but, um, but anyway, yeah, so the golden years, I, I think, uh, Rome had a few great emperors, um, and, uh, Augustus was probably known as the greatest. And then another factor that started to, um, erode Rome from the inside were bad emperors, um, that, uh, you know, abused the power of the, of the station or just didn't, didn't get along with the Senate or other people that conspired against them. Uh, and uh, eventually, uh, the empire got weak enough that uh, the Celts were able to march in on the city. And uh, yeah, I went it. to Rome summer 2019, and I can't remember what the population was at its peak versus its as versus its bottom. But I know that at a certain point, there were essentially millions of people living in the greater Rome area, and that six or seven centuries later, there were a few thousand. I mean, you're talking about complete and total utter collapse and disintegration of an entire society yeah that's that's the way it is and again going back to conan uh the barbarian the description in conan of you know this is it like if my people don't survive this fight we're gone you know that's it for our race you know that's a pretty intense uh stakes uh and um yeah uh, obviously there was um there was a ch like the you know the dark ages descended on europe after Rome fell, um, and um, and then there were the Christian years, uh, where I think it was Emperor Constantine that embraced Christianity and converted Rome um, into uh, the religion, and and uh, that sort of gave gave rise to another period of power uh, in the Renaissance for, yeah, for yeah, Italy, the, the Holy Roman Empire, and so on and so forth. But yeah, I guess yeah. Uh, I guess and Constantinople obviously was named after him, but then eventually that got sacked. What, like in the late 1500s and became uh, Istanbul. I've been to Istanbul and I got yeah. to go down into the Basilica Cistern, which is uh, from that period. And you, you see it in From Russia with Love. It's a, you know that area underground where uh, Sean Connery goes to to go spy on some members of Spectre. But what was funny is how like, yeah. when people talk about like the, the Dark Ages, this idea of knowledge and culture being lost. Like At a certain point, the Basilica Cistern was rediscovered because people thought that th through magic or divine intervention that all this fresh, clean water was coming out of these holes throughout Istanbul. And finally, they unearthed this astonishing structure underneath. And I think that's one thing that people always need to remember is that culture and civilization and language and progress, 
they require maintenance. And <laughs> if you allow yeah. them to atrophy, they can die on the vine and barbarians can quite literally destroy entire uh, civilizations. But luckily, all these wonderful, beautiful uh, chapters of Roman history ha- have survived. So let's get back into this. So what do you think about the portrayal of Brutus and his mother? Because obviously Servilia, you could say she's one of the chief antagonists of the show, depending upon who you're rooting for. But her family has been in Rome for centuries, and she definitely still remembers like the glory days of the Senate prior to all right. these people trying to become emperor. And Brutus, she's almost kind of like forcing him into being in, in the situation where he's constantly at odds with either Caesar and then later on with Octavian. But um, what did you think about how – what's the actor's name who plays Brutus? I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Um, uh, Tobias Menzies. Yeah. So what, what, yeah. What, do you, what do you think about him? Yeah, he's great. Um, I, I think that he's a great he's a great Brutus. Uh, he's he's a very skinny guy, and I've always, for some reason, in my mind, always pictured Brutus as being kind of skinny. And I think he's just about the right age. Uh, so he's he's not old, but he's not so young where you're like, oh, he's making a stupid decision. Like he's making a as as well thought out decision as he possibly can. But he also has this incredibly powerful mother that's trying to force him into a certain role. Did you ever see Jason Robards play Brutus in the 1970 movie of uh, Julius Caesar? I have not. We, we but... had to watch that in class when I was yeah, when I was 15. So uh, that, anyway, that's what, that was my first screen version of Brutus that I saw. It was Jason Robards, who very different portrayal of the character. And John Gilgit plays uh, uh, Julius Caesar in that. Oh, cool. I, I'm, I just wrote it down. I'll, I'll check it out after we're done. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it in 28 years, so I have no idea if it was, uh, if it was good or not. But uh, yeah, you got Charlton Heston in there as uh, Mark Antony. So uh, yeah, it's a, it was a big, big, robust production. That's good. It's a good choice. Um, yeah, uh, well, I, I loved uh, uh, Tobias Menzies' uh, performance of, of Brutus. I thought it was it was very – you could see the, the torment that he's uh, sort of psychologically under, all the tough decisions that he has to make. He doesn't – I mean, obviously, he doesn't want to be involved in the assassination of Caesar, but uh, he feels that that is the only course left for him to hold the empire. To go back to what we were talking about earlier, like, you know, the nobles feeling like they were the only ones that had the solution to Rome's problems. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I feel like the, the story between him and his mother, uh, definitely comes to a head. Every character suffers big time in the show at one point or another. Um, very Game of Thrones like actually. Yeah, I guess Game of Thrones arrived, I think spring of 2011. And the fact that so many directors from Rome were brought in and so many actors, I mean, the actor who plays Brutus also played, I guess, does he play the younger brother of Catelyn? In Game of Thrones, I believe I, I have forgotten. I, I have to double check to confirm, but I but he but you see a lot of cast members from Rome popping up later on yeah. in uh, in Game of Thrones. But yeah, I loved the depiction of the uh, the assassination of Caesar right there on the Senate floor. Kind of reminds me of uh, 2020 and some of our modern day politics. Like if you were to give some <laughs> knives to some of our politicians, like what would go down? Like I feel a lot of them would not hesitate <laughs> to get to get busy. But I love how one person is kind of um, trying to create an adversarial situation with uh, Caesar, but he's kind of chickening, chickening out. He's like, what are you waiting for? Like, do it. And they all lunge in, and they just start yeah. stabbing him from all over. And uh, I feel like um, Sharon or Sharon Hines, however you say his name, handles yeah. the death scene really well. And what I thought the oh. show did so brilliantly is they create a mirror image scene when Brutus's uh, forces are being defeated at Philippi. He takes off his armor, he marches into the opposing force, and starts basically trying to hack 
in very futile fashion against these soldiers, and they in turn start stabbing them on all sides. So you get almost like a complete recreation of the death of Caesar, you know, many years later. Yes, yes. The uh, yeah, Brutus's uh, later suicide by by you know by Gladius uh, is really intense. But yeah, uh, Sharon Hines' death scene is one of the highlights of the show. I mean, the fact that he knows he's dying and he pulls the toga up over his own face. I mean, it's chilling. It's just amazing. And it's just a gut punch that they end the first season on on that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fantastic performance. I guess the only downside is that you don't get this marvelous actor and performer in season two. And you feel his absence it's a little bit like when they kill off Ned Stark toward the end of season one of Game of Thrones. You're like, yeah. what the... How are we going to watch this show without Ned Stark? Like he, like he, he's so good. Like he's such like a, a huge part of the show. But that's what gives the show stakes. And obviously, this is based on history, so they don't really have much choice in terms of who's going to live or who's going to die. It definitely raises the stakes for season two. If you, I mean, I knew enough about history to know that Mark Antony was going to live at least for a good long while because I mean, we've yeah. all seen Cleopatra, and we all know that Mark Antony and Cleopatra are going to become lovers. But let's talk a little bit about the inclusion of the Egyptian side of things because we get a little bit of Cleopatra in season one and we get quite a bit of her in season two but I love the way they introduced the subplot that is unique to the show that perhaps her first child with Caesar wasn't necessarily the result of uh their their making the uh (laughs) making the beast with two backs that perhaps it could have been Titus Pullo Absolutely. Yeah, that is another highlight of the first season, I would say, um, is uh, right. Uh, So Cleopatra is in the midst of an Egyptian civil war. She's been banished and uh, Caesar comes to Egypt in an attempt to unify the empire and finds out the political situation is this uh, sort of little shit of a brother of uh, There are a lot (laughs) of little shits in this show. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, and, um, he, uh, Caesar, uh, quickly comes up with the smart idea of, well, let's find Cleopatra and bring her here. And then, um, in another move to unify the Romans with the Egyptian cause, he installs Cleopatra in power. <laughs> Great scene where the brother's mouth just like drops open when she shows up. And then we cut and, to him um, drowned, like, you know, not too long after, but yeah, yeah. I mean, what I liked about the depiction of Cleopatra is we're so used to her being this larger-than-life, almost mythic, legendary figure in so many ways. But they play her in a very different way in this. She's incredibly yeah. young. She's like a young nymphette. She's almost like a junkie when we first see her. And I thought that was yeah. a really cool, interesting take. And we see her ascent to power and becoming much more intimidating. But it's very easy to think, oh, well, it's like, you know, probably because of Elizabeth Taylor playing her, that she has to be this larger-than-life figure. But it's like, no, she's just a teenager who's having a, um, you know, I guess a, a war of um, a war of succession with her piece-of-shit brother who's even more of a little tyrant than, uh, than she is. But yeah. I love how she's ready for some servicing, and because she's basically a god in her eyes, all these soldiers who rescue her, they're there to do her bidding. So she summons in Lucius Varanus and commands him to enter her, to make coitus. And he just, he, he can't rise to the, to the challenge. So he brings in Titus Pullo, who's more than happy to oblige her. And we get this hysterical scene with all these women watching <laughs> and shrieking and wailing. And it's like, when you make love to Cleopatra, it's not a private thing. You, you have an audience. And they're, they're, it's like yeah. being at a football game. And that was, I thought, one of the best kind of culture clashes throughout the, the show, seeing this Roman soldier getting it on with this Egyptian, I guess they had lost the terms pharaohs at that point, but she is a future, what, yeah. does she eventually become the empress or what does she become in terms of yeah. like her title? 
Queen. Yeah. Queen. Yeah, Queen. I guess Queen is it, it works. But man, I, I loved anytime and every anytime we saw Roman culture and Egyptian culture interacting, I just found it to be fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's uh, also a, a great scene that they they flash back to quite a bit in the second season. Um, when uh, yeah, uh, Caesar can't can't quite rise to the occasion with Cleopatra, so he orders Varinus to do it, and he can't do it either. Um, and uh, so he uh, Varinus orders Pullo to do it, and um, Pullo, of course, has no problem with that because he's one of the only characters that totally doesn't live within his head. Yeah, Pullo <laughs> has no erectile dysfunction, and right. he he spreads his seed, and I mean it leads to the final line of the show where like they've. You know, Cleopatra and Mark Antony, they've been defeated, they have committed suicide, and they uh, she begs that Varinus and Polo sneak her son Caesarian, or Caesarian, or however you pronounce his name, who's in theory the son of Caesar out of Egypt. And yeah. this kid, he still thinks that he's like a god, and the, the movie, I mean, the show ends with Polo saying, you know, listen, about your father. And then we, we fade to the credits. And I know they had Excellent. planned on possibly doing a movie to wrap up all these dangling storylines. But I just love the idea of Cleopatra's eldest son growing up as just uh, an everyday guy in Rome with uh, with Titus Pullo as his teacher. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a fantastic poetic ending. The fact that they bookend it with the, uh, the main theme of the series and the music uh, when they walk off together is fantastic. Um, but yeah, that, that scene where <laughs> it's, it's like a, a year later after Polo has impregnated uh, Cleopatra and Caesar triumphantly comes walking out of the palace in Egypt with the baby. Yeah. And all the soldiers are cheering, yay! And then, of course, Polo and Varinus look at each other, and uh, Varinus is looking very suspiciously. Yeah, Varinus knows exactly what 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 situation they're in, and but everybody's fucking everybody, so it's hard to know sometimes who is the father. Like Octavia, she yeah. marries Mark Antony at a certain point, but she's boning. What's it? Um, Agrippa is that is Agrippa. that his name? Yeah. And so, like, is her. Who is the father of her child? Because Mark Antony is still getting it on with Octavia's mom, even though he's married to Octavia. It, it all gets very, gets very confusing, and there's no, there no DNA tests, but it's just a matter of, essentially, seems to end up. Who do you name as your actual heir? And Caesar, the the big right. main thrust of the end of season one, the beginning of season two, is that upon his death, he has named Octavian as his heir, essentially naming him his son, meaning that. Everything's going to go to him, and it creates this interesting legal conundrum where if Caesar was a tyrant, all of his decisions are null and void, but he also named people like Brutus to positions of power, and so they can't completely undo all of Caesar's work because that would in turn undo their positions, and so Octavian sees an opportunity to gain his own power and prestige and a political life because now he officially is Caesar's heir, takes his name, and... Uh, it lays the seeds for all this future conflicts with both Brutus as well as Mark Antony. Yes. And I'm sure a lot of the, a lot of those names uh, that appear in the show, like Agrippa, you know, being one of, um, you know, uh, Mark Antony's or uh, no, one of Octavian's uh, generals. Uh, I think there was an Agrippa emperor later. So these might be the beginnings of new Roman families that I just haven't researched yet uh, as well. Yeah. I think Agrippa, if, if, if once again, I know some people out there like Eric Bartlem are probably screaming in rage because he's like a big history major in history. But, but I think Agrippa was one of the chief strategists for Octavian once he became yeah. Augustus Caesar, and so he was largely like instrumental. And because obviously 
um, Octavian wasn't a soldier like some of these other people. And so he needed uh, really, really strong advisors. But I do love watching that transition from he's a very wise, crafty boy, but he's not a soldier. But he starts training with Titus Polo and they're like, doing little demonstrations for the mother. And <laughs> one of my favorite moments of either season is when Titus Polo almost becomes kind of a surrogate father figure. And Atia demands that Polo take uh, Octavian to a whorehouse. And then when uh, Titus Polo hears the price of this uh, you know, high-priced call girl at the <laughs> whorehouse, he has this great line where he says, well, the girl better fuck him like Helen of Troy with her ass on fire, or I'll know the reason why. I was like, wow. Like, the, the, like the, di- the dialogue in this show is, is very special. You know, an ancient Greek reference. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's like an ancient Greek reference mixed with British slang. And so, once again, yeah. the dialogue, it's not trying to be like period accurate, but it does work in the context of the show. It's very consistent. Yeah, I, I've, uh, I've given some thought over the years um, to when, whenever we see like a Roman uh, movie or, um, or, you know, even like a history show, uh, why they, they employ Brits to play them. And I guess the answer is, first of all, we're used to it now. But also, I just think that, you know, since the United States was settled mostly by English, um, we always see the British accent as sort of being upper class and yeah, more sophisticated, uh, more worldly, better knowledge of history. Even if they talk yeah. like Bob Hoskins, who talks like you like grew up in like in an alley. <laughs> right. But it's perfect because that's the that's the way they have the show sort of parsed out. Like, you know, you have uh, Polo and um, and Varinus having a bit more of a working man's British accent. Yeah, Kevin and, McKidd and, and Ray Stevenson do not have a lofty accent at all. Kevin McKidd was one of the Scots from uh, Train Spotting. He's uh, the right. guy who... And his uh, his sex tape ends up getting swapped out, which ends up leading to his breakup, which ends up leading to him like you know his his whole life getting unraveled. But I, I knew I recognized him, but he's just so much bigger. I'm so much more muscular in this. I didn't immediately yeah. place him as the actor from Train Spotting, but yeah, Ray Stevenson he got to play the the Punisher at one point. But these two guys are they are definitely not speaking as if they were unto the manner born. Whereas the kid playing young Octavian, who I recognized from. Um, who uh, master and commander? He definitely has a very sophisticated, uh, uh, almost effete accent. Yeah, love master and commander. Yeah, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't see that till uh, I haven't seen that after I saw Rome. So I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, put he's the, the put kid who loses his arm early on, and like in that first battle, and yeah. uh, he has to have his arm hacked off, like in like the second scene of the of the of the movie. Wow. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's a fantastic cast. Uh, yeah, the guy that plays Mark Anthony. I've seen him in tons of stuff since Rome. A uh, very likable guy, uh, and um, <laughs> I think in in a lot of ways he's one of the more modern thinking characters. So he seems to be like one of the most likable, uh, at least when it starts. Um, he starts doing some really selfish stuff as the show gets into its uh, the, the meat of itself. But um, but yeah, uh, you know he's just sort of a talented fighter that happens to be on Caesar's right hand when Caesar starts winning, and um, and so he gets ushered into power maybe a little prematurely yeah he's a proper warrior he's not perhaps not as crafty a politician as some of the others but he definitely i mean he has he enjoys a nice long run and i guess he surrenders to some of the more depraved uh excesses of the era when you finally see just how he and cleopatra are living he's sitting around with like makeup and mascara on his face, you know, wasted all day, every day, surrounded by these crazy orgies. And they're, they're indulging in some pretty depraved behavior, like firing arrows at their servants, dressed up as deer and things like that. Right. Cleopatra is not depicted in some sort of, uh, 
you know, noble fashion. They, they, they're, they're bored and they're cruel and yeah, yeah, they basically just sit around in a drugged up stupor, just fucking each other all day. Yep. Uh, yeah. Cleopatra uh, shooting arrows at her servant with a metal brazier on is an image I will take to my grave. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love that scene um, where Mark Antony is sort of his his uh, empire with Cleopatra is sort of falling apart. And some of uh, the, uh, the the Egyptian servants come in and explain like what happens when, you know, the empire falls like, you know, the, the queen's got to take her own life. And so do you. And, uh, and, you know, that's our tradition. And the, the guy that plays Gar- Gar- Mark Anthony is just like in the suffer mode. And then he suddenly goes, oh, like, yeah. like oh, yeah, I guess I expected that, you know. <laughs> I have to pick between an asp and traditional poison. Yeah, something tells me that when Gal Gadot gets to make her Cleopatra, that it's not going to be quite as unhinged and uninhibited as this show. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about, TV in the 21st century versus movies that while movies get increasingly risk averse and conservative and just kind of bland and tasteless that TV is willing to take risks with really unconventional stuff and like the way that some of these women will pass around like nude men almost like like the way like a like a tray of hors d'oeuvres like we're all, I'm always joking about this um, hashtag free the erection and how so few shows or movies are willing to show an erect penis that it's always flaccid but in episode six of season one become very close and I can't quite tell if this guy appears to be erect because he's just so well endowed and so well hung or if he actually is aroused but he's basically wrapped up with like wrapping paper with a little crown and he's a gift to Servilia and Polly Walker says I can't remember she has some line like oh no one's ever going to turn down like 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 a, like a large cock or something like that but oh, yeah. like this show it doesn't just show a lot of gorgeous boobies and bush it's got dicks aplenty to be to be enjoyed both in Egypt as well as in Rome so no matter what you're into sexually your I guess your desires will be satisfied <laughs> by, by watching this show yep uh yeah I think the the only um uh, clear penetration is shown in the graffiti that's in the show yeah. um but uh still I, I think I love the way they incorporate the graffiti springing to life in the opening uh credits uh, because that was really important. That was the way people showed their opinions in ancient Rome, the people. Uh, so it becomes really important. Uh, Caesar starts to see graffiti of his affair with Servilia depicted, and that's not making him look too good politically. So he calls off the affair and sets the entire uh, tragedy of the first season in, in motion. You know? Yeah, there's so much hypocrisy where behind the scenes – I mean, people are going to orgies constantly. It's one of the things that Octavia loves to do with her friend Jocasta. They just they go to orgies and they get all doped up and they have the time of their lives. But if you start to become mocked by the people, that erodes your power. And so you have to, they're not careful about how they behave, but they're always kind of trying to juggle between their lusts and like Octavian. He is less into all. I mean, he has this great scene where he basically calls out everyone in his family for everybody that they're married to versus everybody they're actually screwing, and there's like a big fist fight and so on and so forth. But he is actually more preoccupied with at least creating the appearance of, you know, obeying some form of of morality. But even then, though, he meets a married woman. It's like, well, how would you like to get divorced to your husband and marry me instead? She's like, oh, that sounds great. And like, you know, when, and we see their private sex life is a little weird. They they yeah. make they fuck in a really aggressive fashion. She's constantly slapping him across the face. So yeah, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, and uh, Octavian, they may they may have done it this way because the actor playing Octavian was too young to show in an explicit sex scene in the first season. But in the second season, it's t- like 10 years later, and yeah. they have another actor playing him, and you get to s- totally see what his sex life is like. And um, yeah, it's it's ba- he's basically into BDSM. Like, Abs- you know, absolutely. He likes getting slapped and slapping her around and stuff. And he explains to her, you know, don't worry about it. You know, if, if this happens, this is just what turns me on, you know? Uh, and I was, I was like, wow, I've never, you know, this is like Roman's great, Rome's greatest emperor. They're depicting him as uh, you know, sort of an alt sexuality guy. A, pre- a, pre- a prevert. Well, he's the son of Atia. He, <laughs> he learned from the best. Well, we've been showering uh, just heaps and piles of praise on this show for a while at this point. Do you have any criticisms in terms of historical inaccuracies or liberties they perhaps shouldn't have taken. I mean, obviously, they're trying to capture so much information in the second season that they have to make these enormous narrative leaps. And I know that if you are a hardcore historian, you probably have plenty of grievances with this show because you're always trying to balance the needs between great drama versus historical accuracy. I mean, perfect example would be like a gladiator fight. In every single movie we watch, they almost always are not wearing helmets because we want to be able to see the actors' faces. But in traditional times, you would always wear the helmet, no, no matter what. And so we're, filmmakers and television storytellers, they're constantly bending and twisting things to their own needs. So do you have any, I guess, um, issues on this front? Uh, yeah, I, my only criticism, uh, no, as a matter of fact, I think the reverse. Like, I think that they went way out of their way, way beyond what was humanly sane to get the accuracy down. And um, the only the only thing that I would, uh, you know, any hardcore history buffs out there that haven't checked out the show yet and, you know, maybe be prepared for the fact that, you know, there are characters that don't really look Roman that are supposed to be Roman. Um, and, uh, and, and obviously, you know, the main cast is British and Scottish. So, you know, uh, that's probably not the way those people actually looked. But, um, I think that from the subjective point of view of the show, they use that to give you visual, visual differentiation, differentiation between the characters enough that it serves the story. So I think whenever they, stray away from history, um, they do it for the sake of the the viewer, you know, so the storytelling will be clear. And um, yeah, the, the only criticism I, I think that uh, the show or showrunners would agree with me is, uh, yeah, halfway through the second season, uh, Bruno Heller said uh, that's when HBO pulled the plug on the show. So he was, like you said earlier, he was planning on doing five seasons. Um, so the start of season two is quite leisurely paced. And then the final, um, you know, the final five episodes are in fast forward mode, like historically. Um, so they skip over a lot of stuff so they can end it on a really dramatic uh, point. Um, and, so, and I think they yeah. very cleverly, when it comes to the battles, sometimes they'll just skip a battle entirely, just jump right to the aftermath and just tell you what happened. But every once in a while, they will give you the scale. I mean, there's a there's, when they're... Um, when Brutus and Cassius are fighting Mark Antony and Octavian, and you see in their armies collide, I was thinking to myself, well, this is on par with anything you might have seen in Lord of the Rings only a few years prior. And admittedly, they don't show like the whole battle. They just show like the, the lead-up. This is a show. It's not a, a $200 million production or anything like that. No, but they, they do a tremendous job of even show, showing the different style of Roman soldier dress. Like I, I, I really had never seen anything like that before this show. 
Yeah, and I love just like the, the detail, the tactics, and like the way they'll like reach around the sword behind the knee and slash and things like that. Like, of course, like, but you would think after a little while, like, if everybody is using that tactic, well, maybe put some armor behind the knees so you don't constantly get <laughs> <Right>. hamstrung <laughs> by, your, by your enemies. No, yeah, I, I guess and, and you it, said you uh, sorry. I was just going to say you said earlier um, they 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 show I think at the end of season one um, where the soldiers all do that thing where they get down on one knee and they put the shields on top of them to uh, protect themselves against uh, flying spears or arrows. Uh, that's uh, the testudo formation. I think that's what uh, Varina says, and it, you know that means turtle in in Latin. And sometimes it uh, works, sometimes it doesn't. There's one battle scene where we see arrows going through through their hands, through their feet, through their faces. I mean, it's just. Yeah savage it's so gruesome I mean, it, the the gore it, it leaves nothing to be desired and yeah it's, I, it's almost like on cue every single episode just has random violence and or nudity there's this one scene in uh, episode six of season two it's just a transition from like one storyline to another and they're kind of panning across the street and they're just two exotic looking women walking down completely nude from head to toe. Right. It's like, oh, okay, well then they're, 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 just, they're just going about their business. But when you want to talk about gratuitous nudity, like there it is. Like this is the heavyweight champion of gratuitous <laughs> violence and nudity. Yeah. At the time I remember being pretty shocked by a lot of the, of the show. Um, but nowadays I think we're a little more accustomed to it. Uh, but you know, uh, it was yeah, great at the time of the show being out i didn't have i didn't even have cable at the time that the show was playing i was going through this fate like 1998 or seven or so i went through this up till about 2006 i went through this phase where i just i only watched movies in the theater or dvds or blu-rays or whatever i didn't watch any tv at all and then when i got into business school i just needed comfort food and so i started finally uh, dipping my toes back into the world of tv and catching up on a lot of shows that i've missed and so i i was just a, a tad too late and man, I don't even know if this show could get made now where you could make it. You just have to be willing to put up with the shrieking and screaming on social media for the lack of, um, I guess, like safety bumpers that so many people demand in their entertainment now. Yeah. It's like you're allowed to make whatever the hell you want, but you at the same time just have to be willing to put up with a certain amount of grief. Like I was watching Robert Downey Jr. on the Joe Rogan Experience, and they were asking him about uh, Tropic Thunder and whether or not you could make that movie now, whether or not he could play that character now. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you could. And, and then he just kind of let that dangle because <laughs> you're going to have to put up with a lot of abuse online because social media was just in a very different place back then. Yes, yes. And that wasn't too long ago. It's really, it's stunning. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm watching uh, stuff uh, for a podcast or something. And, and uh, I was just like, ooh, yeah, I remember seeing that as a kid. And it didn't quite hit me the same way that it did right now. Well, it's a weird thing where I'm never shocked by what I see, but I'm always shocked by what people could get away with. I'm like, wow, like, it's incredible just how quickly the culture has changed. It's, I mean, it's all obviously it's social media. Without Twitter and Facebook, who knows which direction the culture would have gone. And I think Pendulum will swing back the other way, or perhaps a show like Rome might even seem tame and cautious by comparison. But it, it did make me a little sentimental for like the pre-social media era where you could just have these shows where the di- for everything from the dialogue to the violence to the sex, everything is just as ruthless as possible. Just like little things like when... Um, Mark Antony's mirroring Octavia and Atchie's at the wedding. She's pissed off and somebody offers her food. And she's like, I'd rather eat shit. It's just, it's so frank and just so (laughs) gruesome. And yeah, so just every episode just filled me with absolute delight. 
Yeah, and they do say funny stuff. Um, like there's smoking pot at one point, and she's like, "Good shit" or something like that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe somebody back then would have said something like that. I mean, it's it it never they never break character. Like they, it's always like sort of stretching the boundary, maybe to make it a little bit of an inside joke. But you're always they're always like, yeah, that character probably would have done that or said that. That makes sense, you know. Yeah, it's very true to itself. I feel like once you establish the rules of your world, the style and tone of your world. You kind of got to play it out to the end, and this show does a really good job of remaining incredibly consistent in terms of production value, quality of writing, quality of... It, it doesn't... So many shows have peaks and valleys, and they dip, and they go up and down. This show pretty much stays strong throughout. I guess the only times where I felt my attention perhaps waning a bit was with uh, Varinus really going to the dark side in season two as he's trying to uh, get his children back who have been sold into slavery, and then his attempts at reconciliation with them... It was fine, but I didn't find it to be as riveting as the tensions between Octavian and um, Mark Antony, where you can just see that there's this inevitable confrontation on the horizon. But it yeah, did— I- uh, I'm gonna, I, go ahead. I liken, yeah, I liken that part of the series to, you know, there, there's um, uh, in, in Dumas, Dumas' Three Musketeers, um, that that's sort of handled in the same way. It's it's sort of like a picaresque uh, narrative, but it's told it's it's told in a uh, historical framework. So you have these real world events that you know that you know that everybody the, of the time knew was going to happen. Um, but then the characters sort of disengage from that every once in a while and get involved in their own personal, um, you know, dramas and and stuff like that. And I think uh, at the point where Varinus is trying to recover his children, um, you know, that they felt that maybe the character needed to be a bit more humanized and, and have something, you know, so they had to take him to the dark side and then bring him back. And, you know, so he could make that whole journey. But anyway, well, while he goes to the dark side, the character who continues to be nothing but great comic relief and uh, is uh Polo. And I love his relationship with uh, Gaia, who basically she's kind of like a mad. She's not a prostitute. She kind of runs the horse, and she's like, but she's like a slave. But she's like a high-ranking one. That one thing people need to keep in mind is that within the slaves, there's like a hierarchy where some wield enormous power and like accumulate wealth, like the guy who works for Caesar. And some are quite literally there just to stand by a horse, so you can step on their back when you when you dismount. Like there's there's all levels. But this character Gaia is so sensuous and so beautiful and just so full-figured and she's so aggressive and she's got this crazy scene where she's uh, getting on with Polo, she's biting his lip and he biting her arm and she's like, is that all you got? And he puts a rope between her teeth and starts like fucking her from behind. I mean, it's just incredibly intense stuff. And when he yeah. reports to his wife that he has quote-unquote beaten Gaia for mouthing off to her, he's like, all right, well, good. I think you need to beat Gaia like that every month. <laughs> seems like that. Uh, yeah. And then when do. we hit on her deathbed, when she confesses that she poisoned Pullo's wife to kill the child inside her. I mean, then, then Pullo has to choke her to death then and there. And this is this Shakespearean level brutality when it comes to just, just the murder and mayhem going back. It's like water sloshing back and forth in a bathtub. Yeah, the three in, in three episodes, like those those two characters are they were probably the most physical characters in the show. Um, you know, get together in a very unlikely way, have this intense relationship, and then it dissolves, and then she dies. Uh, and uh, and Polo is the one to to put the the final nail in the coffin. It's really just a one of many like 
soul crushing moments of the show, but it's so great. It's it's handled so well. And because it's a TV show, you're you're building up with these characters for hours and hours and hours. So you have a lot emotionally invested in them. Also, it's a great example of how in TV, how do you keep a character relevant? They need to constantly be zigging and zagging and going in different directions. It's like permanent second act storytelling, like in soap operas, whether you're living or dying or falling in in love or out of love or whatever. There is a soap opera element to this. It's just a soap opera where when people have a confrontation, there's a very good chance that poison or assassins or rape or murder or something is going to be involved. So it just takes all the melodrama of an afternoon soap and takes it to Roman Heights. Yeah, just uh, Shakespearean. As a matter of fact, yeah, the the scene where Polo um, uh, murders uh, that that woman is very much uh, like a mirror of Othello. You know, the death, the Desdemona's death Absolutely. scene. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that that whole like towards the end of the second season, um, where Rome is desperate for grain. Um, you know, never really occurred to me before this last watch, but uh, it really reminded me of the sort of the rising action in Coriolanus, uh, where, you know, Coriolanus is put in, in charge of the grain distribution because he's the only one that's military enough to handle the citizens. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, I mean, as, as Polo points out to all the people screaming for more grain, he's like, look, I can hand out all the grain right now and you'll be full today, but you'll be hungry tomorrow. But as we get toward the end of this, I guess if people want to learn, if they if they watch the show and they love the show, and they want to live in this world more, and they either want to look at great paintings or look at great sculptures or read great books or watch more shows and movies, what are some of your favorite just aspects of human society that allow people to explore this world in greater degree? Because obviously, probably no period in human history has been written about and discussed and dramatized more. So what are what is the Victor Rodriguez kind of like essential list for people who want to do the deep dive into this period and these stories? Yeah, I would say like starting with two dimensional art, um, I would say, you know, the oath of the Horatii, um, you know, David uh, would be a good place to start. I'm sure he's got a lot of Roman depictions. Um, And if you want to go to film, um, you know, the Stolen Eagle, which is like the first episode of the HBO Rome series, uh, I have a feeling that actually happened because uh, there's also a, a novel called The Eagle and it was made into a movie in 2011 with, I think, uh, Channing Tatum. <laughs> um, but uh, he is uh, sort of a uh, retired Roman soldier that has to get his honor back by finding the stolen uh, golden eagle again, once done by the Celts. Uh, and um, yeah, I would say uh, if you are you find the show spicy and you find that uh, those elements titillating, See Caligula, you know, Tinto Brass. Um, I uh, love Tinto Brass. I need to do a full, full on Tinto Brass episode at some point. That movie's fucking wild. <laughs> yeah, it, it is definitely um, done more for entertainment, but there are a lot of historical uh, moments of accuracy in Caligula. And it is uh, a film that, like, like you said before, could never be made today. Uh, and uh, it's glorious Once again, in that way. It's like everybody always says, like, oh, you couldn't do this or you couldn't do that or you couldn't say this. You can do anything you want. But you have to also just be willing to swallow and endure the consequences. And it takes courage on the part of storytellers to put up with that level of abuse. I mean, someone like Lars von Trier, I don't think he sits around worried about what he can say and what he can do. If his film gets financed, he will gladly go off and make a movie like The House That Jack Built, which triggers everybody. But he tells his stories his way. And so I feel like anytime you have an era 
where people are saying, don't say this, like, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. It creates opportunities for filmmakers and novelists and comedians to do it anyway. And those are the people whose work will endure. But uh, I just um, remembered this great painting of Caesar that I wanted to call attention to. It's actually a very late painting. It came out in 1899, but it's by uh, Lionel Noel Royer. And it's of the, um, the, the, the king of the Gauls, Vercingetorix. Uh, basically surrendering his arms, surrendering to Caesar after being Mm -hmm. defeated, but it's an absolutely glorious painting, which I'll be using to promote this episode. Oh, awesome. I got to check that out. Um, Yeah, we mentioned I, Claudius, uh, and um, there's also on Netflix, there's a Roman Empire show. Now, this this has just started happening, um, but this is sort of a hybrid between... The old History Channel shows, which sort of showed little dramatizations, but then they had, you know, talking heads like, you know, history buffs, which is like talking about stuff and professors and stuff like that. This is sort of all dramatized, but occasionally they have voiceovers and cuts to, um, you know, college types uh, talking about the stuff. Uh, so the latest is Roman Empire. I think they just did the second season. Each season sort of... Uh, encapsulates one Roman emperor's rule. And uh, one of the ones they do is Commodus, um, who is probably most famously portrayed in Gladiator, uh, you know, Ridley Scott's movie. Um, and I think uh, Gladiator, probably a lot of the source material that inspired Ridley Scott to make Gladiator um, looks like it's sort of a romanticized version of Rome. Uh, I mean, I think what inspired him more than anything is that one painting, that very famous painting of a gladiator holding up his weapon and looking up and uh, I guess whoever's up in the stands doing the thumbs down. But when Ridley saw that image, he was like, wow, like this, we can make an entire movie just capturing this flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely a visually stunning movie. Um, yeah. I mean, Ben-Hur, I think uh, originally the vision for Rome was to do the five seasons uh, ending with, uh, you know, the the time that Jesus walked the earth. Uh, so I think that they were following Ben-Hur um, from a story perspective to a degree. Uh, but yeah, it's the Ben-Hur's long ass movie, fucking amazing musical score. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, and um, and of course, Monty Python's Life of Brian. <laughs> it's sublime. Yeah, I revisited yes. it when I did my uh, episode about Monty Python with Stephen Saunders uh, this past spring. Great. And man, that is a movie where I thought it was kind of funny as a teenager, but at 44, it's like this is one of the funniest things in human history, and you really you really can't go wrong. It's great. I, I found that as I get older, um, the depictions of Romans in Life of Brian are the most memorable. Oh, yeah. I mean, just like, uh, I have a very good friend in Rome named Biggest Diggus. I mean, it, just, <laughs> it is extraordinary. And obviously, we mentioned before, you know, obviously, there's the tragedy of Julius Caesar. It's, um, it, it's, it's heavy material. It's William Shakespeare, but it's been made into a bunch of different movies, so people can definitely hunt that down. I fully intend to watch I, Claudius, and I'll definitely be reading Claudius the God. And I ordered some history book recently. Let me actually bring up what I ordered and see if you've heard of it. Because um, mm-hmm. as, as I was watching, I was like, what are the best books on, uh, on Julius Caesar? Let's see. This, this author, he's written a shitload of books about this period, but it's called uh, Dynasty, The Rise and Fall of the House of Caesar by Tom Holland. I have not. I have not heard of it. Yeah, he's one of those authors that I think basically devoted a huge chunk of his life to just uh, capturing different periods. This is the period, uh, it, because it's related to the show, I ordered it because it, it starts with the death of Caesar and all the events after that. It's like, all right, well, that era is obviously grabbing my attention. Let's start with that. And we can always go backwards or forwards. Uh, what about 
the period before Julius Caesar. Because obviously, I mean, that's the era that so many characters in the show are pining for, where they just, they, they love like the, the great heyday of the Senate, you know, the days before emperors, where it seems like everybody's always trying to recapture some sort of uh, Roman golden age. But are there some great stories uh, from that period that, uh, that have grabbed your attention? Uh, other than the the big fight between Romulus and Remus that uh, you know describe that sort of in, informed the creation of the city of Rome, which is the first part of the name of Romulus. So it's kind of a spoiler alert, you know who wins. <laughs> but um, uh, other than that, uh, which is you know covered in mythology and, and the story of Aeneas, uh, which takes place after the Iliad. Um, I can't think of any. There has to be a reason why people usually start with Caesar. Um, well, the story but, of Coriolanus, uh, when does that take place? Because I feel like that's earlier. I have to admit, I have only seen the Rafe Fiennes film version, which I like, but um, they transpose it into modern day uh, for that movie, so I can't yeah. answer your question. I read the play and saw it in uh, Shakespeare in the Park. Okay, yeah, so he was a general to have lived in, he, uh, I got it right here, he lived in 5th century BC, and so this, this is early days of Rome, when I think you know, Rome is just beginning to build uh, or kind of expand their territories. So, yeah, if you want to get back into that, like, uh, get totally old school, apparently um, he lived, when the hell did he live? Uh, boom, 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 boom. I'm not seeing any years. In any event, fifth century. That's well before Caesar, because I guess Caesar was like, you know, in the decades leading up to the switch from BC to AD. But any final words about the show, about Roman history, or just about anything that you uh, might want to plug or promote in your own life? Um, yeah, I would say we covered the show pretty well. Um, there's uh, there uh, there are a lot of fantastic moments in in either season, and I think it's totally worth it to watch both. Uh, I think if by the third episode, if you're not into it, you're probably not going to enjoy the show. But I have a feeling that you, whoever you are, will. Um, also, I should give a shout out. Michael Apted, big time director, directed the first three episodes. He did like, you know, seven up, 14 up, 21 up. Like he did that giant series. He's kept going for decades now. But he also did yeah. a Bond film. Michael Apted, no one ever talks about him, but he directed the first three episodes, all of which were written by Bruno Heller. Yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, uh, and... Um, yeah, I guess I should say if uh, any of you out there, I mean, I know some of you have bought my book. Um, there is a story I have in there called Scripto Inferior, um, which is uh, it started out as sort of an homage to a Robert E. Howard um, and his uh, sort of adventure, two-fisted adventure tales. But it stars a, um, a Roman noble and his Greek slave. And they're basically uh, tomb raiders in, in Egypt. And that's the that's where the story unfolds. So that's uh, in my book, The Sound of Fear. And um, uh, that book is now available in digital format. Um, it's slowly coming out as a podcast called Inside the Sound of Fear, which is everywhere you get podcasts. And uh, you can also get the paperback if you're old-fashioned like I am um, at Amazon. So, uh, yeah, and if you want to know where to find these things, you're not sure of uh, pronunciations or whatever, uh, my Twitter handle is at DimestoreCaesar. Um, it's never been more appropriate. When are you and Bill Scurry going to have like a gladiatorial battle over all these names of Caesar? Because he's, I think he's American Caesar for his right. channel and his email, and you're Dime Store Caesar. So I think at some point, y'all going to have to whip out your gladius and your tridents and your nets and battle for the right of the use of Caesar. 
yeah, maybe we can we can find some other um, Caesar content and uh, and have both of us on the show and and have us duel in some in some way. Um, but uh, yeah, no no relation <laughs> between the two Caesars, but I do like his his uh, his commentary. Um, you know, or uh, yeah, also check out my uh, website. It's V H Rodriguez, uh, so it's V H R O D R I G U E Z dot WordPress dot com. Excellent. Well, I always love the topics you pitch. I guess we, at this point now, we've done HP Lovecraft. We did like Pacts with the Devil. We did the Odyssey. There's one other that I'm forgetting. What else? Did we... Oh, we did uh, Berserk. Yeah, Berserk. So we, we, yeah, we've tackled some cool topics. And all the topics you pitch, they always involve you know, weapons and destruction and mythological <laughs> forces and sex. And I feel like when it comes to imagination, like we very much are in... Uh, lockstep uh anything going on in the world of gaming that's attracting your attention right now obviously we haven't even mentioned that this episode but that is your background you come from the world of god of war anything uh that's attracting your attention oh yeah um yeah i would i'm eagerly awaiting the release of uh, playstation 5 um i haven't i haven't acquired that or the new xbox yet but um i plan to at least get one of them i'm gonna bite the bullet and get both because i'm tired of having certain games that i can't play and i'm gonna be playing demon souls the restored version for playstation 5 because i've I've mentioned the, the the Dark Souls franchise a million times on this podcast. Demon Souls is where it all got started, but it's being basically fixed and brought up to speed for a modern audience. So I'm dying to check out that. Yeah, no, I, that, I'm sure that's going to be awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say there's a lot of interesting stuff being done in the mobile space right now. Uh, you know, mobile games are getting super advanced. And um, yeah, there's a, I think there's a Skyrim coming for mobile or maybe it's already arrived. Uh, I've I've played hundreds of maybe even thousands of hours of Skyrim so I think I've done my duty when it comes to Skyrim on the Xbox but the big one I'm waiting for is Elden Ring which comes from the same people who also make the Dark Souls but it's more of like a from my understanding, that more of an open world environment, but with the gameplay of a Dark Souls game. So that's like, all right, well, that you will never hear from me again because I'll just live in that world for for several years after that comes out. And I'm really really looking forward to the full release of Baldur's Gate Three. I, I got the mm-hmm. advanced version, which is basically the beginning of the game. But for me, playing a game based on Dungeons and Dragons. It's not fun unless I get to level up to, to max level. Like uh, playing a wizard, is not fun if you're just running around casting magic missile over and over again. I want to get up to like big beast crushing fist and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but I am I, I am eagerly awaiting the, the the full release of Baldur's Gate three. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I would um, I would say like recently, like like last two years, um, Assassin's Creed. If you liked ancient world stuff and you're a gamer, um, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Is really good. Um, the new God of War, which <laughs> is the first game that doesn't make any use of the music that I worked on, <laughs> it, but it's still great, uh, came out, uh, and that's that's very good. Uh, and um, I know that there's stuff coming down the pipeline for um, you know for the PS5 that's that's also going to be pretty impressive. So yeah, highly recommend that. And on the tabletop gaming front. Um, yeah, uh, Wizards of the Coast just released Descent into Avernus, which is supposed to be a really good campaign where the characters literally go to hell um, and uh, and come back. And that, like, ever since the first edition Player's Handbook, I've always been like, oh, I want to be in a campaign where my character goes to hell and well, fights his way back. Well, there's that picture of a paladin in hell, and it's yeah. not even necessarily that great of 
art, but as a little kid, it was like, you know, as good as it gets. It was astonishing. Super. And so I've always loved that image. And I, I had a fascination with rolling up and playing paladin characters for a long time because of their natural ability to fight undead and demons and devils and that sort of thing. But the problem is you got to have that charisma 17, which always makes it uh, tough to roll up a, a paladin. But in the games of Baldur's Gate, they just let you like essentially pick your ability scores. So it takes all the risk out of it and you can play as many paladin characters as you like. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I, I've been playing D and D since the first edition was, was out. Um, but, uh, I really like the game balancing they've done. I've, I haven't played too much of it since the fifth edition came out, but what I've played, I've really enjoyed. And the balance between the classes seems to be one place where they really excelled. I admire balance and I recognize the need for it, especially when it comes to like, like video games and computer games. But there's something about me that loves the colossal imbalance of first edition D&D and looking for the exploits and like which classes suck, which classes have enormous growth and potential. And because the game is just chaos and bananas, you're rewarded for your knowledge of the game in terms of how you play. And so I kind of like the fact that it's full of exploits, whereas now it's like no matter what path you choose, you're all kind of kind of end up in the same place. And for me, that's... in, in gaming, especially like video games, people are always finding the exploits and then they do a patch and they fix it. And of course, when you do that patch, it opens the door for other exploits and other imbalances. And so it's always this game of cat and mouse between the gamers and the and the developers. And so, yeah, players are always going to look for an advantage. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, yeah, I, I, right now the the game that I'm I, I'm currently playing, like I play uh, online with some friends of mine in Los Angeles uh, that I used to game with in person. Um, but uh, we're playing a game called Masks, uh, which is a very stripped down, simplified role playing system. Um, w- the Masks version is playing young superheroes, like teen superheroes, uh, but uh, they also have like a D and D type one and a post apocalypse one. And uh, it's a very addictive, easy-to-learn system, so I recommend that as well. Very cool. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. We hope we've given you some interesting shows and books and movies and plays and paintings to consume about this era. And also, for people out there who are buffs on the subject, please, any and all suggestions are welcome and encouraged because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I think as I get older and get weird about history, this might be one of those areas where I decide to invest a lot of time and energy into learning more. Also, it just gives me more excuses to travel back to Rome. And because I visited so many of these spots last year, like where they had the chariot races and where I went to the Colosseum and all those things, I might as well actually learn something about those. And then it gives me an excuse to go back and stuff my face and party like a rock star in Italy. In any event, if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. Uh, it's a very, very helpful. I always forget to say that, but there are some people who hate my guts who <laughs> gave me some really bad reviews. On, I'm, I think I'm at 4.7 on average at iTunes, which is fine. But when I see some of these one-star reviews and they're like, he's insensitive, I'm like, fuck you. I'll take your insensitive and shove it up your ass. In any event, some good reviews would help balance out some of those critiques. But if you want some more short-form content in the near future, you can always hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. And coming out in the very near future, we've got the short film Hobo with the High Kick, starring Moose Matson, directed by Bill Tech. We're right on the cusp of releasing that into the world, which we're all very excited about. But we hope you enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down Victor Rodriguez on social media. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.